You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Roy Thomas, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Amazing Spider-Man, Episode 3A, covering a period of Spider-Man from 1966 to 1967. This is going to be our review of the first half of the Amazing Spider-Man epic collection called Spider-Man No More. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your co-host, Frank Martini. And Frank, which issues are we talking about today? So we will be covering uh, issue 39 to 46 plus uh, annual three, which is the beginning of the Romita days on Spider-Man. Yeah, so if you listen to our last episode, we finished up our talk about Steve Ditko and all of his issues. And so the the way the Epic Collections break, uh, and this is the same for the omnibuses and the essentials and every everywhere, they like to put a direct split right after Ditko's last issue and Romita's first issue. So that's where this epic collection starts is the very first Romita issue which is a great jumping point you need to you will learn along the way a lot of things but as, as we will discuss a lot of the change, status quo changes from that first issue and it's also very easy to to, to get going and uh, to because there is not that much history to, to cover and to, and to know beforehand that's very true I think the only thing you really need to know is that um, Peter graduated from high school and now is now starting his college days. And um, Aunt May, of course, always ill, yeah. <laughs> perpetually. And I mean, it, the the wonderful thing about this era is the way that they write. The stories are maybe one or two issues long, and then uh, and then they move on to another thing in the next issue. So and and they do a great job of bringing you up to speed on anything that you really need to know. And at this point, the Marvel Universe is still so new that there isn't a whole lot of continuity that you need to to know about. Uh, it's all being written for the first time here. Well, the, one of the things that you need to know is that most of the major villains of Spider-Man have been established in the previous thirty-eight issues. So. Uh, you name it, you got it. I mean, Dr. Octopus, Green Goblin, Sandman, uh, the Vulture is there, uh, the Scorpion is there, Electro is there. Um, Craven. So, yeah, Craven. All, all the classics, yep. villains you, could, you, you can imagine, uh, they have already been established. They have been introduced by Lee and Ditko. What we felt in the last, the last few issues of the Ditko era it's really difficult not to say disco era whenever you're talking about <laughs> disco, but that's a, an entirely different world for sure, is that we were going into a more uh, thugs, bad guys, mob kind of environment. Uh, and here we are going to, to jump in a different, in a slightly different location with a more supervillain of the, of the month kind of uh, situation. 
knowing that Ditko was plotting the book and giving it really a different vibe, especially towards the end, even though towards the end he was less inspired, as we discussed last uh, last time. But here, the relationship between Lee and Romita would be different. The, the mood of the book is going to change very quickly yeah. and really going into a different direction. So you may not have liked the, the first two volumes and get into a different kind of uh, Spider-Man vibe with Epic 3. When you mentioned that the all of the major villains have been introduced at this point, it's like th- I think that's a good note to make. And from now on, we don't get as many new villains because when you have a rose gallery as as well established and 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 as interesting as all of these Ditko villains from the early days, you want to keep using them. And because there are so many, it it takes a while to cycle through all of them. So in this book, we see the return of a bunch of the villains that Ditko created. And Romita, in these in this volume, in Epic Collection number three, we'll see three new villains that are all mainstays of uh, of Spider-Man, the Spider-Man mythology. Two of them we'll talk about in this episode, and one of them we'll save for the next episode. But uh, yeah, it's some it's some really interesting stuff. Just one note about the actual Epic Collection itself. I want to I want to note that this book, uh, what is the date here on the inside here? It was printed in uh, 2018. There was a period in 2018 where LSC Communications, who Mm. is the printer of the book, uh, used a different type of paper, a much thicker, much coarser paper. And you can tell that these these volumes are really, really thick. They're thicker Mm. than most epic collections. This book doesn't even hit 400 pages. Like it's actually small in terms of epic collection page counts, but it looks just as thick as the other ones. Yeah, it's true. I was surprised by the the low amount of uh, of stories and issues contained in this book, actually. Yeah, and if you compare this to uh, X-Men Proteus, which came out just recently, which has a very similar Mm -hmm. page count, it's a way thinner book because Marvel has started using uh, thinner paper. So they experimented with this thick coarse paper for, I don't know, maybe three three or four months or something like that. So there are maybe a dozen epics that have this thick coarse paper, and I actually don't like it. A lot of people do like the thick paper, but I find that it's so coarse that it's a little cumbersome to hold the pages open. And I, I can't even, like, you have to be in the very center of the book in order to just be able to lay it flat on a table and it for, to, for it to stay mm. open because the pages are so coarse. So it's not my preference um, I prefer something a little bit thinner, uh, not like spit through thin, but uh, but a little thinner than this. Anyway, that's just a minor nitpick. The the actual construction of the book is just fine. The reproduction is really nice. Other than that, it's it's good. It, it's really funny because I'm holding uh, currently, you know, the the, the Starjammer X Men Starjammer book by Dave Cockrum next to my Spider Man. Yeah. Because it was hanging there, uh, and the the X Men book is 480 pages. And it's thinner than this collection. Right. Just, exactly. You know, I've got the, the two of them, one next to another, and it's, uh, and it's really surprising. Yeah, they definitely used a, a bulkier paper. I think it's cheaper paper. I think that's why they went for this, because um, mm. because it's cheaper. And the, this is like in the days when the paper costs were rising. So they were looking for alternatives alternative paper to use that would cut down on the cost without having to raise the cover price. It could have been worse. It could have been worse. It could have been a quad book. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those quads. 
Okay, let's talk about our issues here. We're going to start right off the bat with issue number 39 called How Green Was My Goblin. This is one of the most iconic covers for Spider-Man mm. in all of Spider-Man history. This cover of the Green Goblin holding Peter Parker uh, tied as they're flying through the sky and his like you can see the suit underneath his ripped clothes. Like There's just something about that like you see the cover and it's like oh man he's in big trouble not only that but mm. goblin knows who he is like this is a big deal you get the sense of dread it's a fantastic cover and what a great way for ramita to burst on the scene it's like he really pulled out all the stops for this um, the issue itself i it's actually kind of um oh it's actually this this is the good one the next one is a little bit more of a downer but this one yeah um this issue, Goblin tracks Peter down. We get to know more about Norman Osborn, uh, and through the course of this, uh, we find out that the Green Goblin has uh, arranged things, a trap for, for Spider-Man, and, um, and Spider-Man falls for the trap, and Goblin follows him home, finds out his secret identity, and then kidnaps him. And then at the very end of the issue, this is the big spoiler for people who haven't read this yet, we find out that Norman Osborn is the Green Goblin. Well, it's a spoiler for people who have never read Spider-Man, never seen a movie (laughs) of Spider-Man. Basically, why I adore all those guys listening to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that struck me really odd, and this is... I've read this issue before, so it's not it's not a surprise. But for those people who are not like, if if this is the first time they're reading these issues now, after having seen all the movies, after seeing how everything's laid out before, I think it's surprising that Peter Parker doesn't really know Norman Osborn at all. Mm. When it's revealed to him, he's like, "Wait a minute, that's Harry's dad." Like that's how he knows him. He's only met him maybe once and doesn't know anything about him. Yeah, because you only met him once at the Daily Bugle. Yeah. That's about it. And and by, by at that time, he wasn't even mentioned. The name was was not even mentioned. Right. So it, it, it's, it makes sense that he's not that familiar with the, with the guy, actually. I'm just used to, and I think it's a better shock, with things like um, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie, mm. where Peter has a good relationship with Norman uh, throughout that movie. So when the... the when it's revealed that he is Green Goblin, it's actually a quite a blow um, because this became a father figure kind of for Peter. And whereas in this one, it's like, yeah, sure, we know it's Harry's dad, but that's not a shock. And at this point, Peter's not even really friends with Harry. So it's not even like, it's not even that he cares about Harry. It, it's strange. Mm. It, it's something which is played much more in the, in the Spider-Man movies. Yeah, for, for, sure. for instance, with the... Vulture in yep. Homecoming. In Homecoming, or, yeah, that's right. Which is basically the same approach than they have in the first Tobey Maguire movie with uh, with with Norman as well. Um, but somehow, uh, well, well, first of all, we have to keep in mind that the, the Goblin was unknown at that time. Nobody knew his identity, so it was quite, it came as a shock. It also comes as something which is uh, which was an editorial issue because. It was mentioned several times that there was a disagreement between Ditko and Lee about the identity of the Goblin. So the reveal took longer than expected. And uh, uh, so I, I guess it, Lee wanted to maybe mark his territory with his first issue. And, uh, Absolutely. And reveal, 
right off the bat who was the Green Goblin, just maybe to to piece off the Ditko and say, okay, now it's my it's my book. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I, I'm, you know, when it comes, there, there were only two mysteries uh, left from the, the Ditko days. It was the identity of the Green Goblin and Mary Jane, right? And the two get revealed in four issues. Yeah. I do agree that I think Stan was like, Dick goes out, I can do whatever I want now. And so he yeah. introduces this concept right away. It would have, even if he had waited for six issues or whenever Peter gets his apartment with Harry, that would have mm. made a better impact. But Stan yeah, really sure. wanted to rush it. And it just reminds me of like, when we learn about the crime master in a few issues back, mm -hmm. it was a nobody. It was somebody we'd never heard of, a crime boss that had never been in the book before. And I feel like this is kind of the same way. It's Green Goblin is revealed to be someone that we literally didn't know the name of before. Yeah, he, he popped up for a couple of issues, looking kind of a shady guy, but yeah. uh, there, there was no thing. There, there was nothing that could have uh, made us think that this guy was the Green Goblin because there was no clear connection. Yeah, uh, even though. In the 90s, Ditko said that it was his idea from the beginning and that he planted Harry and Norman, and Norman uh, in the book. Well, that's, you know, retroactive interview. So there's no way we can say that's true. That's not true. So right. I think that the, the, the connection that you mentioned uh, is something that we will see afterwards. Well, we're not spoiling what we are going to talk about in the next year, or right. the next issue, but... Yeah. The, the, the connection would be much more established and the, the, the father figure aspect. It will never get as in, in that level, I think, in the book, but uh, yet there is a, a bigger connection. The bigger the, connect, the, the relationship gets between Harry and Peter, the, the bigger the connection and the relationship with, with Norman as well. Yes. So it will give a bigger shock whenever Norman and the Green Goblin comes back. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about this artwork for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, right off the bat, Ramita busts in with a very clear and distinct style. He knows what he's doing. He knows how he wants to approach these characters. Um, and Stan, we made a note in the last episode that Stan's uh, dialogue had kind of been cut back. And I don't, and we didn't know if that was because I, I suspect a lot of it was Ditko was framing his mm. his artwork so that not a whole lot of dialogue could be fit in some of the panels but also maybe stuff was late or Stan just didn't care anymore because there were like those whole fight scenes that didn't have dialogue in them at all and mm. but you look at page eight in this epic collection which is the fourth page of this issue mm. and he, Peter's talking to the doctor and look how much dialogue is just in this one page yeah I, I was exactly on that page thinking oh my there's so much to read, so much cooking yeah. in, this, in this page. And the second to last, uh, the second to last panel where there's the nurse, mm. it's like the nurse didn't have to say anything in that panel at mm. all. It had no, there's no point, but Stan crams it in there anyway. And then you look at the next page where where um, Peter is walking by his friends, and each one of them has to say something in each panel. And this is classic Stan mm. Lee, like if you read X Men. Every single one of the X-Men has to have a line in every panel. And so Stan's kind of going back to his old ways now that I think he is back in charge of the book. I think it changes 
along the way, yep. because if you flip on the book and you go to page 260 or you know something like that, so much further, you see that it changes a bit. And yep. uh, maybe it was a tighter plot and tighter uh, connection. Uh, and then after a few issues, I believe that Stanley left a lot more territory to, to John Romita. Yeah, I agree. Even though they, were, they had been working for seven or eight months already together, maybe more, maybe more than that, actually, less than a year, I would say, uh, because previous to, previously to, to, to these Spider-Man issues, uh, Romita was working on uh, on Daredevil, right, and had already established a good working relationship with Stan because there were Romita mentions in interviews that they were plotting together and they had uh, work sessions uh, where they were discussing the issue and the, uh, the content of the book. So that that was that, and yeah. I believe that Lee has mentioned uh, and Romita has mentioned as well that the Spider-Man cameo in two issues of uh, of Daredevil were a sort of tryout in Stanley's mind for uh, Robita replacing Ditko. Oh, yeah. Because he felt that there would be a change sooner or later, and uh, it may be that if Ditko hadn't left, maybe Stanley would have fired him somehow. So that that was a tryout for for the look and feel of Spider-Man for for Romita. Although the look and feel is completely different from the look and feel of Daredevil, uh, if you read them back to back, you will see how much Romita is trying to ape Ditko's style mm-hmm. in the first six, seven issues. It's, yes, definitely. You know, mimicking the, the, the nine panel pages, using, a, and I've read this week, I was reading a Romita interview when he said that he was using a very thin pen to lay out, to lay out the pages. To give it to give a Ditko vibe, so very to have this very thin look and feel, while he was using a thick brush on Daredevil, and also the choice of the inker, uh, which we didn't mention, it's Mikey Dimio or Mike Esposito, as we know, we know him, yep. uh, who's inking, which is completely different from ja- Frank Jacoya uh, inking uh, Romita over on Daredevil. So that's uh, that, 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 that's uh, if you look at the, the issue 20 of the of Daredevil, which is one of the final issues by Romita, and this issue you, you wouldn't feel like there's only a two months gap. There's so much difference in the look and feel in the style, uh, and that's Romita trying to mimic uh, Ditko, but uh, it wouldn't go that very far. You can even see it in in a lot of the poses. If you go to page thirteen yeah. in the Epic Collection, which is page nine in this issue, the the fight on the top of the building with all those goons. Mm-hmm. There's the fourth panel where Spider Man's swinging in and he's holding two like a web line in each line. Mm-hmm. Like that's such a Ditko pose there. And you you if you flip later on in this book, you'd never see Romita do a pose like that anymore. He. He has his own language of Spider-Man that he quickly develops through the pages of these of this epic collection. Yeah, because uh, what I've seen, because I spent a bit of time trying to analyze a bit the look and feel, uh, Romita tends to have Spider-Man engaging a shoulder all the time, very frequently in panels. Spider-Man is jumping, so I'm trying to show you. Obviously, you can't see me, so it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but you, you would always see, frequently see Spider-Man with uh, his arm engaged uh, and, and with his shoulder in front uh, in the layout, something which is absolutely not Ditko uh, 
because it was more of a uh, acrobatic look and feel to, to Spidey. Right. And uh, well, we see that change. Uh, we see in a few issues, uh, Romita trying to do his best Ditko impression, but it, it doesn't last. Wow. Very interesting to look at it through that lens and see where he begins and how far he goes. Yeah, even the inking style, because Mickey Demio, Mike Esposito, doesn't stick around as the inker for too long, and then Romita ends up inking himself. And mm. that's where we see a lot more of his style, I think, come through and just the line quality, the way he spots blacks and everything. It just, uh, it, it's different, uh, a few issues down the road here from what we see in this. And uh, Esposito is just generally a thinner inker in general, I think. He, he, uses, mm. he generally speaking uses a thinner brush, but this still looks really yeah. good. This issue, this everything he does with the goblin and the fights, and uh, it, they're actually a good team, Romita and Esposito. I like them. Yeah, they work well. Um, it will be less interesting in the fourth epic collection when we get Don Heck doing the finishes oh, while Romita is, is, is only doing the layouts and Esposito is finishing. And it's a completely different book, completely different look and feel, much blander, I would say. Uh, than what we see there. We'll see that actually in um, the the annual number three with the Avengers is that yeah. team up. Yeah. So we'll discuss that when we get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's the, the the kind of things that we would see in uh, in the the fourth epic collection. Right. One of the things there's so much to discuss about this issue because I think that really Stanley wanted to to show that it was a different time for yeah. Spider-Man. Um, if you read page five and six of this issue, which is nine and ten of the Epic Collection, you see that until the last issue, uh, Peter was a lonely guy. He didn't want to mingle too much. Uh, wasn't really a social person, and suddenly. Uh, even though he's anti-sick and so on and so forth. So we get the, the, the usual background that is a good excuse for Peter not to, 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 to spend too much time with people. We see that he starts showing a, a more human aspect and uh, being more friendly with Harry Osborne. And maybe it's two or three pages later when he goes to, to the Bugle. Uh, the issue before, he was such a jerk when he was speaking with Ned Leeds and when you get to page uh, 18 of the Epic Collection, you see that he has a completely different approach and a different way of dealing with things with, with Ned. So I think it's one of those, uh, you know, changes that uh, Lee wanted to to put in Peter's life and, and in Peter's behavior. Reading that scene with Harry was actually quite jarring because it's so it seems so out of character for Peter. Yeah having just read all of the Ditko stuff. But at the same time, it's extremely familiar because this is the Peter Parker that we're so used to. This is yeah. his character that has been so established over the years now. And yeah, like you said, it's a drastic change. And you can see that Stan is like, no, 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 this is now the direction that I want Peter to go. Um, and same with Harry. He has a change of heart all of a sudden as well. And same with Gwen. Uh, Gwen mm. has a change of her attitude. She she's not as snobby and uppity anymore. It it all changes in this issue. Everything. Uh, and Ned Leeds has brown hair in this issue. <laughs> <laughs> That's a running joke. Yeah. <laughs> That's a running joke of the book. <laughs> oh yeah. 
Um, I also like how Peter wrestles with the idea that the goblin now knows his secret identity. Uh, he goes through all the motions of anger and fear and everything like that as they fight on the front yard. And it's just really well written. I love how it's laid out. The pacing is great mm-hmm. and it's exciting. And uh, and you really, really feel that that tension uh, this is kind of the first time that his identity has come under threat in a serious mm-hmm. way. Now, I, we can think of when he was unmasked by Dr. Octopus in issue 14, I think it was. Mm, but he was sick. Nobody believed him. It, no one believed him. Right off the bat, it was not taken seriously. And, but this is a completely different situation and really, really interesting to read. I think it's one of the really first cases of such a situation because... The cat is out of the bag and it cannot go back in. Yeah. Well, we'll see that it, it can, but it will be a, a, a permanent threat over over the book. And uh, even though they w- they will always find an excuse to have Norman getting his memory back and losing it again and so on and so forth, doing the back and forth, it's it's something the Joker never found out. Uh, well, maybe he did recently, but he, he never found out that Bruce Wayne was Batman. Yeah. Nobody found found out that uh, Clark Kent was Superman, and then used that to threaten him. And, and you, so that's uh, a very different dynamic in the book, and uh, and the sense of the of the threat is much higher because you're like, oh, this guy knows all his uh, his family, his friends. Uh, his environment, so that's a major threat, and uh, that's something that, for instance, Brian Bendis would use with Daredevil and would use with the uh, in Ultimate Spider-Man as well, and uh, and that's the first time it took place uh, in comic books, I think. Yeah, definitely. So, <laughs> issue forty, called Spidey Saves the Day, featuring the end of the Green Goblin. So that's like, hey, let's spoil the story from the title and the cover. <laughs> So we got the same team uh, here working on the book, uh, Lee, Romita, and Dimio. This issue is all about the Green, the, the, the green Goblin. It's a heart-to-heart uh, conversation between the Green Goblin and uh, a Peter Parker who cannot fight and who's attached to a chair. So it goes through all the, 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 the origin of the Green Goblin, the, the various appearance we had, seen from his point of view, from his perspective. And obviously, in the end, we get a, a big fight between the two with a sort of deus ex machina and using, oh, he had a bump on his head and now he's lost his memory, yeah. which is classic uh, to be expected, but uh, it works anyway. It will be reused and it will happen a lot of, a lot more uh, in the future, but here it was uh, a fresh thing. What is interesting in this uh, in this issue for me is that, uh, well, it's a very verbose issue, of course. It's more of a review of everything which has happened before between the two rather than a proper action issue. We don't have a lot of extras, so a couple of pages when Betty comes back and uh, and Aunt May being worried, but uh, out of the, 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 the 20 pages, 14 or 15 take place just between the two of them. And that's something which is very unusual and different. And it's one of the f- very first stories I read, uh, The Green Goblin, when I was a kid. It's, it's a favorite of mine, even though it's at, it has flaws and uh, it's way too verbose and uh, the plot is not moving along very well, but uh, I kind of like it. <laughs> 
it does have its issues. It this though learning so much about Norman all of a sudden I found was an odd choice, uh, and this is. I think this maybe is more of Stan's way of writing, whereas Ditko would just introduce the concept of a villain with a gimmick and use that as a foil to make Peter's life more complicated. Um, This fleshing out Norman actually gives him uh, much more of a focus and makes him an actual character. Uh, This is more than we know of any other villain that we've come across so far in the Ditko run, except for maybe the lizard who has a pretty good backstory. Mm. All of Mm. the rest of the villains, they're just kind of gimmick characters who don't have a huge backstory. Even the rhino in the next issue gets more of a backstory than like even the, like the chameleon or the vulture. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting. So I think Stan is really positioning the Green Goblin to to be Spider-Man's main villain. Uh, I think he sees the, probably the parallels with the Joker and how popular the Joker is, but uh, but also recognizes that you know Spider-Man like this is his chance. Stan's chance to create like that ultimate arch nemesis for Spider-Man, which I think up to this point was probably Dr. Octopus. Yeah. Well, if you count how many times both appeared in the book previously, uh, it should be the same amount of issues, I think. Maybe the Goblin appeared more. Okay. Uh, but, uh, well, just on top of my memory. But uh, yeah, Dr. Octopus was actually the more threatening one. Yeah. And and even he didn't have that big of a backstory. Like his backstory is very um, oh, it's one page, very very lame. <laughs> yeah, he's a scientist. Uh, he was working on atomic stuff. He blew up, and that's it. Uh, but that and that doesn't go into his motivations. That doesn't go no. into his personality or his upbringing. Like that's just literally just how he became Doctor Octopus. Whereas this issue tells us about his personality, about Norman and how he relates to Harry and how he runs his business and all of that leading up to how he becomes the goblin. So it's it's interesting that in that aspect to find out about about him like this. Yeah, but it also ties with what we've seen so far. So the first appearances of Harry, the Strom issue, which was issue 37, they, they all that connects yeah. Uh, and the previous appearances. So all that uh, is sort of tied up and you could easily imagine that it's really the end of the Goblin uh, yeah. because because of the memory loss. So it, it, it's a strange choice at the same time. But yes, it's logical because uh, Stanley has had written himself in a corner with what he what he did in the previous one, he had to find a way to to undo the the, the identity aspect because the, the threat would have been permanent and it, it would have been too much of a shadow on the book. So it makes sense to find a, a proper solution to temporarily at least get rid of the, of the goblin. Yeah. The other big change that Stan makes is that he makes Aunt May all better, like instantly at the very end of this issue. It's like she's been suffering this for months now in the book. And all of a sudden, oh, she's okay now. (laughs) Yeah. And she looks younger than in the previous, uh, in in the Ditko days. Yeah. I mean, she still looks really old, but (laughs) a little bit younger. But yeah, yeah, and so th- they still will play with the um, don't don't get excited or you'll have a relapse kind of a storyline that goes through the next several issues. But at least she's mm. not on her deathbed constantly like she was through the Ditko years. 
Oh, yeah, let's move on to issue number 41. This one's called The Horns of the Rhino. It says, beginning a great new era in the ever-changing life of the world's most amazing web spinner. And I don't know that I call this the beginning of a great new era. I would would have no. thought that maybe the Green, Go- the Green Goblin story was the beginning of a new era. Or maybe they felt like that was just wrapping up plot lines from Ditko's book, and now they can start in, in their own direction. Uh, but in this issue... There, there's actually a bunch that happens in this issue. John Jameson, mm. who we haven't seen since Spider-Man number one, returns to the book. This is JJJ's uh, son, astronaut son, whom Spider-Man saves from a falling space capsule. He's got some sort of space spores that have, have affected him, or they don't know if it's affected him, but the government's keeping a close eye on him. And someone, we don't know who, has hired the rhino to kidnap uh, John Jameson. So we meet uh, we we meet the very first brand new Romita designed character here, the rhino. And mm. Rhino has always been one of those characters that is like he doesn't usually get a whole lot of development. He's played up as a kind of a dumb oaf, and that's about it. And so this is kind of how he starts too. This is kind of all he is is just the the guy who runs into things doesn't have really any more strategy than that. Um, and his design is kind of cool. Yeah. It, yeah. It took so many years to, to, to develop a, a personality and a background to the Rhino. I think it was in the uh, 2010 or, you know, back in the brand new day era, there was a lot, a lot of stories. Some of them were written by Mark Wade and Dan Scott, probably giving a more back, giving more background, giving him a tighter origin and a more uh, dramatical personality compared to what we see there, which is basically a, a mindless uh, running brute. Yeah. I think that he's also the only Ramita character that appears in this, the old Spider-Man cartoon. Oh, All of the yeah. rest of them are the Ditko characters. I didn't remember that. Yeah. It was, uh, I haven't seen that cartoon in so many years, even though it was <laughs> uh, the beginning of my Spidey uh, love, but uh, I haven't seen the cartoon in years. Another big change is that Peter and Betty have their reunion and <laughs> Stan completely writes off everything that's happened before. Like mm. in just one panel, Peter just says, now that she's returned, I don't feel anything. Whatever we had before is gone. Nothingsville. Mm. So there, he's just written that right out of the story. And we're going to see uh, that she and Ned are kind of going to go off. Oh, oh, by the way, Ned's hair is blonde in this issue. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're going to go off in the sunset and, and have their own life. And we're not going to hear from them for quite a while. Mm. I mean, we will still through the next few issues, but this is the beginning of the end for them, uh, as far as Stan's concerned. You see that panel on page seven, uh, which is 53. Uh, you know, now she's returned and nothing's spilled. Yep. It's reused in the death of Jim T. Wolf. It, what, really? Yeah. Uh, you know that by issue three, the death of Jim T. Wolf, yep. Betty is very close to being killed by the Sinisa. Right. Okay. And Peter reminds, uh, has uh, memories of uh, of Betty and how they met and so on. And if I'm not wrong, because uh, it's this panel which is used to get his memories of when he first met her and when they were, they were sort of dating. I need to have a look at that, but I'm pretty, pretty sure that's, uh, that's it. 
they chose the wrong panel because he was thinking the wrong thing at the time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think that uh, we can easily start to see that Romita is is doing his best not well to 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 mimic Disco, but there are some things which are typically Romita. For instance, page nine. You know, when you, uh, the, the top panel, when you have the two kids speaking, yeah. uh, you know, arguing, that those kids are so Romita looking. Right. And, you know, those characters being in the foreground while there is stuff, you know, there is three levels, you know, first the kids, then Spider-Man, then the screen with the rhino. Right. Uh, that's, that's such a Romita panel that, uh, and uh, so you can see that even though, and I, I also read that, that Lee specifically told Romita not to have uh, Peter to be too good looking or, you know, me being too muscular and so on. But he can't help it because you see that issue by issue, slowly, 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 he changes completely. And the way he looks changes dramatically from 30, from issue 38 to 40-something, it, it would have changed completely. Romita also does a lot of uh, different camera angles, which some, is something that Ditko didn't usually play with unless it was like a dramatic shot during a fight scene or something like that. But on the same mm. page that you were talking about on page nine of the issue, uh, the, the third panel where the security guards or the agents mm. are stopping Peter, and it's just from, it's, a, it's an upshot. Mm. And it's just simple, and it's it's slight, but it's something that Ditko never really did. He didn't play with the camera angles like that. Any of his just uh, regular conversational shots were always just straight on eye level. Well, we we also need to, to keep in mind that uh, Romita was a, a romance artist before he moved to Marvel. So we, we let's just think that. Uh, a year before that, he was doing only romance comics uh, at DC. Right. So he did like eight or nine Daredevil issues. Uh, so whenever we get into those social uh, pages, uh, I think that he reused a lot of what he had learned from doing romance comics, especially obviously on the women because they look all look beautiful, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that changes completely from what we saw before. Um, but also, I think he's trying to use more dynamic views for 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 those shots because that's the only toy he had to in romance comics to make them look more dynamic. Oh, and, for uh, sure. When it's just talking heads with with yeah. the drama like that, it's just talking heads. You have to make it different and visually interesting it's somehow uh, mm. and so yeah you can definitely see that he brings that to the table here oh and uh, we we have uh, another new character introduced in this issue it's peter's bike <laughs> oh that's right yeah <laughs> peter's bike so this is also another change i think in just his personality yeah. um growing up and becoming more of a person uh more of an adult so yeah <laughs> Whenever I see this bike, I remember the... I don't know if you've read Spider-Man Blue. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah. The, 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 the story by Tim Said and Jeff Lubb. And whenever I see this bike, I, re, I recall this book and the, the, the first or two issues when the, um, you know uh, Peter is taking uh, Gwen on, right. the, on the bike and uh, you have this beautiful splash page yeah. that says okay let's fall in love which is one of one of the most emotional uh, splash pages of, of Spidey I've ever seen I think uh, and it works wonderful so this bike always triggers this uh, this connection between 
this, these Silver Age issues and more modern uh, aspects and uh, the fantastic uh, Spider-Man Blue miniseries. I was going to mention Spider-Man Blue because that story retells all of the issues we're talking about in this episode, starting mm. with the Green Goblin story, going right through actually to a few issues after that we're going to talk about in the next episode with Craven and Vulture. Uh, and it yeah. just frames it in such a different way because Peter's reminiscing about his time with Gwen. And it, that story is one of the best Spider-Man stories. Like It's such nice. a good, good story. Yeah. Okay, moving oh, yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, issue 42, uh, The Birth of a Superhero. So it's the first uh, first issue with only uh, Lee and Romita working on the book. So Mikey Dimio uh, Esposito is, is gone. Uh, so we get a full uh, Romita film to the book. So the, the, the beginning of the book is, is quite dramatic because it appears that Spider-Man is robbing a bank. And we will find out along the way that, uh, that, that, that there's a reason for that, of course. Uh, and, and this issue continues a lot of the plot elements that were dangling from the previous issue. So the spores that we were discussed actually give powers and uh, turn John Jameson into a powerful person. The rhino is back as well and is trying to escape in order to fulfill his mission and capture John Jameson. And... Uh, well, we see a fight between the, the uh, between Jameson's, uh, John Jameson and, and Spidey. Uh, it, it feels like the spores have also altered his, his personality and the way uh, and the way he behaves yeah. uh, after being uh, manipulated, I would say, by his father in order to go and grab Spider-Man because apparently Spider-Man robbed the bank. Um, they have a fight together and uh, and they find the proper way to get rid of the powers and uh, and the powerful John Jameson by the end of the issue. And we get a major... Actually, the, 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 it's not that much of a, of a major issue until the last page. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we... We get such an historic moment, and uh, I mean, you cannot mention that without having a smile on your face because it's such an iconic moment, and it's been repeated to death. And you know the line, is, and you know it's been reused in books, in movies, and so on and so forth. But that first appearance of MJ is is really something that uh, that's memorable, and it's completely uneventful compared to to to, to what happens in the issue, which is action packed and where a lot of stuff is going on. But that last page, uh, that's something for the ages. It is, yeah. So I only have one issue of Spider-Man from the Silver Age from this era, and it's this issue here. Nice. Yeah, and so it's uh, it's always great to when I read through these epic collections. I sometimes with these old comics, I'll pull out the old issue and read that instead of reading it through the book because I just like that experience. And so I was able mm. to do it with this issue. John Jameson, poor guy. He's he just goes through the ringer over and over again. Yeah. Like there's he just can't take a break. And like later on down the road, he turns into a werewolf. And then mm. like mo modern day John Jameson has been, I think, nearly killed because of Carnage and what Carnage is doing. Uh, he's, he's a security mm. guard at Ravencroft, and um, it's just uh, he he doesn't get a break ever. <laughs> the poor guy. He, he, worked, he, he worked for, he was the pilot for Captain America in the Grunewald era as well. Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Well, I, I I must say that I read that like three months ago, so that's why I remember. Ah. And it doesn't play a big part uh, in in those uh, in, in those uh, at the time, but uh, he's hanging uh, and he's part of the and he's part of the crew 
that Captain America had assembled at the time, you know, when he was trying to go all over America to solve problems for people and, and so right. on. Uh, so John Jamison was his pilot. And that's the only moment when he doesn't suffer from some sort of problem turning into a werewolf or something. Uh, Ned Leeds is in this issue again, but this time with orange hair. Yeah. Maybe they got him wrong versus Flash Thompson. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Through this issue, Peter Parker is starting to notice Gwen a lot more. And Gwen now has her famous uh, iconic um, black headband. Mm. Uh, but in, it's a definitely a change for Peter as he is starting to actually notice his friends. And we can see that Stan is trying to get the shift from them hating him just because he exists to now actually talking to him and having conversations. So they still have their... You know, they still have their jabs at each other, especially between Peter and Flash. But it seems like it's more in fun a little bit more than just, you know, actually. On them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's completely a new uh, new approach for, for, for the way he behaves uh, so socially and uh, um, and the, the look and feel of Gwen's. I mean, obviously, once again, the romance aspect is so obvious for here. And also from one of the Romita interview I read, uh, he said that he specifically asked the, the colorist not to put any yellow in Gwen's hair. So oh. that changes, but uh, he wanted really to have a, a almost white hair so that she would stand out so much uh, among the other characters. Definitely provides a, a contrast with Mary Jane's red hair, which is pretty much just black with red highlights. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I found this issue to be a little sloppy in just its its pacing uh, because mm -hmm. we have we have this flashback right in the middle where Peter reveals why he robbed the bank earlier because he was it was a bomb and he was trying to save the bank. It's like that was such a weird reveal and it doesn't make mm -hmm. any difference to the actual story. Uh, they don't revisit it afterwards and clear Peter's name or anything like that. Like he just, it's just an odd, oddly placed scene that doesn't seem to, to, to help the situation. Like they seems like they just had to create some reason for uh, John to go after Peter in the first place, but then, you know, they don't bring any conclusion to it. It's sort of because the, the right after the, the, the flashback, uh, Spidey goes to see uh, JJJ and he says, ask the bank and uh, you, they would tell you that no money is missing. But that's about it. And uh, it, it could have happened in the first pages and the, the, the pacing would have worked exactly the same way. The, the, the flashback was not necessary in the middle of the story. Uh, it kind of uh, slows it down. Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit clunky. But and in the end, though, he doesn't even we don't see the public like he, him clear his name with the public. He's still mm. a bank robber, according to to the general public who witnessed this bank robbery, even if the bank knows that. Like for us, the reader, we should have had a little bit of closure there. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but otherwise, it was a pretty good two-parter with uh, mm. uh, with John. And now we're moving on to issue number 43, Rhino on the Rampage. This is the issue where we find out a little bit more about uh, Rhino's story, how he got his hide. We have a nice flashback where we find out that he has he took months and months of injections and treatments and until he was ready like his molecules were able would able to adhere to this special suit that he's been given so it really is it's part of him 
and I like that aspect. It's such a different take on just the the Roughhouser. I don't like a lot of modern retellings of Rhino's origins. Like I think of Rhino from Ultimate Spider-Man, the comics, and mm-hmm. he's just wearing a robotic armor. It's yeah. not the same thing as this actually another second skin fused to his body. It's a completely different aspect, and I don't like that. It also really changes Rhino's character if he can get out of his suit because part of who he is is the fact that he is always the Rhino. He's never anyone else. Yeah, and he doesn't have a name. Right. It's one of the the, the villains who, uh, whose name gets revealed much, much, much later. Yeah. He's completely the Rhino and no one else. Uh, you wouldn't, you don't see him in his CVs or something like that. So that, that that's very true. One of the things that I think we forget about Mary Jane in these early days, like, of course, we know her iconic first line, face a tiger, you hit the jackpot. But then all of the other dialogue in these early days of MJ is so 1960s. She speaks with all of the lingo that Stan can possibly think of and sticks it in there. And it's very, very dated. And some of it is like, oh, man, uh, why is she talking like this? You know that for someone who's not American, and most of what she says doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't actually understand most of the things she's saying, uh, you know, like, uh, um, come on, let your hair down. I mean, I, I, I believe it means be cool or, you know, chill out or something yeah, like that. But right. uh, I, I, I couldn't figure it out. Uh, That's funny. And also, there are so many mentions of Rock Hudson uh, yeah. in those early issues, which in retrospect are so embarrassing. Obviously, you, you couldn't. Stan couldn't know a he was gay, and uh, so he, because he was such uh, you know the hunk of the of the era, but uh, right, yeah, he wasn't out at this point in the sixties. He didn't no, come no, out no, in the eighties no. uh, until actually he, he was diagnosed with AIDS. With AIDS, or I in think. the nineties, yeah, yeah, uh, in the nineties, yeah, yeah, when he when, almost when he died, so it was quite a shock for everybody when yeah. he came out, and uh, because he announced he was sick, and very soon afterwards he he, he died, I think, uh, but. So that, that's one of those things that uh, looks so dated now, of right. course. Yeah, you have to look at it in the time frame, in the context. But mm. yeah, and all of Mary Jane's dialogue is that way too. It's like all of, She's constantly calling people dad, <laughs> which yeah. is so funny. But that's just uh, a way that they want to bring in this culture. The dads and the, and the nothing veal and the whatever veal, which yeah. was apparently <laughs> much used. This yeah, especially comparing to Ditko, who was he felt firmly placed in the 1950s, even though this was the mid approaching the late 60s. Now Stan has uh, brought us, I think, into the 60s with clothing styles, or maybe Ramita's responsible for that part, but with the dialogue, and we see uh, student protests and stuff like that, and like this is definitely the 60s now. Mm. Uh, Stanley would always leave. Uh, issues of Vogue on Romita's desk uh, as an inspiration. And Romita says that uh, there were no uh, safe from the, the king's being wife. There, there were no really older ladies appearing on the book. And he was buying the magazine called Seventeen to, to get references of the closing. Oh, okay. uh, and I guess he was doing that before also from his romance days. That makes sense. Um, so, yeah. 
I think that one of the things which is interesting in the book, because it will have a, a, a broader and broader impact, is the fact that Frederick Foswell appears every issue. Ah. And he's always this kind of... He's just lurking. Uh, yeah, lurking character. Uh, so maybe it's because he's a journalist, maybe he has an agenda, you know, he has this uh, split, uh, not personality, but uh, persona, because he's playing also, his, he has this patch character who's working with the, the cops and partly with the mob. And uh, so, you know, he's a, he's a kind of uh, in-between character and he's always there, always, always in each issue. So you can definitely see that Stan had, uh, had some good ideas about him and he was always looking right. uh, up to uh, the, the issues we will mention in the next episode. Kurt Connors also comes back in this issue here to help Spidey yeah. develop a different kind of uh, webbing. Mm. And this will play directly into the next issue, yeah. uh, which will feature the, the return of the lizard. So that's kind of cool that uh, that we see him come back and that that stands thinking more of more along the lines of um kind of foreshadowing i guess mm. in his in his storytelling and i really like the the, the connection between peter and between spider-man and uh, and kurt connors yeah. because i think it's it's really nice to, he's not a father figure is is this older person but also uh friendly with him they are both scientists uh, so they can have a different connection. Uh, so that makes the lizard's appearance more dramatic right. than the, your, your, your villain of the month. Uh, so that ties very nicely because Connors was there during the Master Planner saga. Right. He's back again here and we get the lizard right afterwards. Hey, I just realized something. Tell me if this got concluded in the very last Ditko issue there was a $20,000 reward on Peter Parker and all the mob bosses mm. were after him. Did that get concluded? Did the reward get called off? Because that was no, a Norman Osborn no. thing. Yeah, yeah, that was Norman uh, playing this. And uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, it was just forgotten about. It, yeah, we, and I think it's even reused in issue uh, 38 actually, where the Goblin pro uh, asks, uh, proposes money to, to, to attack Spider-Man, but uh, no, the 20k uh, thing, I don't think forgotten. it's... Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and you see, I, I was flip, flopping, uh, flipping through and uh, page 80, no, 98, which is page 10 and, uh, and the following, 99, uh, you see how the layout of the page has changed uh, in just four issues, three issues. Yeah, uh, because the the nine panel the layout is almost gone, um, and you when you see page ten, you, you see that that final panel um, bottom right with Spidey, uh, the, the the way Spidey moves that's classic Romita, and it's already yep, there. Definitely right. So from time to time we will go back to the nine panel grid more towards the end of the issue. Uh, but uh, you can already see the the, the 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 kind of layout that Romita does appearing very clearly uh, early in the in the book. Definitely. Uh, I like how Spider-Man defeats the rhino in this issue by uh, creating the webbing that will dissolve this outer skin. Um, it's a little reckless, I think, because they don't know how it would mm. react to his... If, he, if this skin is actually fused to, to yeah. rhino's body, how is it going to effect if you if you're melting it off but it seems to have done an okay job <laughs> yeah 
And I think this concludes the John Jameson section as well. Uh, his story is wrapped up, and we're not going to see him for a while now either. We get back to the kind of depressing endings that we that we had from the the Ditko era. Uh, that's going to play for for quite a while with the, the always a final panel with a, a sort of depressed uh, Peter because they need money because Aunt May is sick because. Uh, Spider-Man is uh, is troubling his life and is a thorn inside and so on and so forth. Uh, it's something which is back so that we we don't get too comfortable with the fact that socializing and spending time with people now. But at the end of the day, he never truly, truly wins. So it gets back with this issue and we'll see that with, I think, sort of combination with issue 50. Yeah, definitely. It's he's playing the long game here. It's definitely a build up mm. to fifty for sure. And he does it, one of these issues. He has some wins, like, and they make a note about that uh, at the on the last page. So we'll we'll talk about that one for sure too. Mm. Uh, we're gonna take a little pit stop over to the Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number Three to become an Avenger. This I found was kind of a silly issue overall. Oh um, yes, <laughs> definitely. I would have liked loved to see. I don't know. It's exciting to think, oh, Spider-Man j- joining up with the Avengers for the first time. And that would have been exciting. But the way that they do this is just kind of, it's not great. First, we have layouts by John Romita with pencils, like finished pencils by Don Heck. This is what you were mentioning before. And the inks mm. by Mickey Demio. And so we have a different look. You can see Romita in these drawings, but most of the faces, the line, uh, and all, like, it it definitely looks like Don Heck as well, the way that he draws the eyes and and everything. So it's really kind of a grab bag of a bunch of different styles all together, and it's and, a little out of place in this collection. Yeah, and, and I must say that uh, I've never been a, a fan of Don Heck because... Depending on the ink, uh, you see a completely different aspect. So most of the time, his, his layout, his page layout, is kind of stiff or bland. Uh, I think, if I remember well, I think he was also a romance artist back in the 50s. But he, has, he doesn't have a very dynamic kind of approach to his drawings and, uh, and layouts. So that's never a good sign for me when I see him. And I think that the combination between Romita and Heck works better in the opposite when Heck is doing the layout and Romita is inking. That's what he did uh, on his first... The, the, the first work Romita did for Marvel was... Uh, Avengers 22 or 23, and uh, and it was inking Don Heck. And it works a lot better, actually, uh, right. than that. So in this issue, Spider-Man is uh, recruited, or they the Avengers try to recruit Spider-Man to join their team. They don't really know much about him, so they're going to put him through a few tests in order to see if he's really Avengers material. And one of the tests is, go get the Hulk. <laughs> bring, it, bring it back <laughs> yeah. over here to us. <laughs> This is kind of ridiculous, but uh, I'm sure it was exciting to see, uh, you know, the Avengers and Spider-Man in the same book together. And this kind of goes like they're really hitting it home with these these annuals. The first one has 
all of the Sinister Six, like all of Spider-Man's villains in one book. The second one has a momentous um, meeting between Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. And now we have the Avengers featured in this annual. So these are big deal books here. Unfortunately, the premise is just silly. Yeah, it's the the, the idea of the book is more interesting than the book itself. And I think yeah. it's really what you will see in many of the annuals, because we, we won't get into the next annual because it's at the end of we will mention that in the next episode it's not such a great story as well and i remember that even the one with the the red skull the year after with with peter's parents not that great either great concepts uh but may have been better as uh, single issues yeah. than you know getting uh more more pages and more time uh while the plot is fairly straightforward even though th- th- this annual is only a 20 page story because it's uh uh then there were a couple of reprints uh or maybe more but um it's not a great story overall one of the funniest moments to me in this issue is that they're making a big deal about Spider-Man. Like, we got to recruit Spider-Man. How do we find out more about him? Uh, We need to have a a vote and everything. Everybody's got back together. And this is the time when um, Thor and Iron Man are not on the team. And I think Mm. um, Ant-Man and Wasp, they're all not on the Avengers right now. It's only Captain America and Hawkeye. No, actually, Goli- uh, Goliath and Wasp are back on the team because Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are on a leave of absence. But um, but Thor and Iron Man are not. So to bring to bring them back is a big deal. And mm. what I find really funny is that they, in order to find out more information about Spider-Man, they contact Daredevil. They called Daredevil mm. to their Avengers headquarters. And I can just imagine Daredevil's like, oh, man, the Avengers, they contacted me. They want me to be part of their team. <laughs> and then they're like, hey, uh, can you tell us more about Spider-Man? <laughs> we want Spider-Man on our team. He gets he gets the shaft. It's really funny. <laughs> they, they could have called the torture. It would have made more sense. That's right. It would have made more sense. Uh, but I think they wanted to promote Daredevil's book because they put in references to all of the appearances and yeah. little editorial boxes there. What is interesting uh, about this issue is that a it reestablishes more Spider-Man in the Marvel universe at the time uh, because Ditko had completely uh, faded out that that, that aspect, uh, making really Spider-Man alone, uh, especially towards the end of his run. And also, it shows that Spidey can take the Avengers and can take the Hulk. Yeah, that's right. It shows how powerful it can be. Yeah. yeah, those the very good, the very good scenes of the book are the the scenes with the Hulk and the you know the the page where page eighteen of the issue one one twenty seven where Spider Man discovers the identity, the secret identity of the Hulk. And they have this conversation and uh, it shows a more human aspect and uh, of, of the character and uh, saying okay I'm I'm not delivering the Hulk to, to, to the Avengers I don't know what they would do with him and uh, he pities the Hulk somehow um, and uh, lets him go uh, and chooses not to become an Avenger even though he would certainly benefit from it. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting move to say, I don't know what the Avengers' motives are with the Hulk, because you would think that he would just trust their judgment, but uh, he doesn't. He he second guesses and eventually lets them just take care of their own problems and he goes away. So that was an interesting end. And he has, we have a depressing ending for the annual as well. Why does nothing ever go my way? Mm, classic. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, let's keep on going. Yeah, so issue 44 uh, called Where Crawls the Lizard. So the big deal of the story is that uh, Aunt May is going on vacation. Uh, so for someone who was at death door not so long ago, that's a major improvement. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she's going on vacation in Florida, of course. And at the same time that Aunt May is uh, leaving, Dr. Connors also is at the, the same station to welcome his wife and son coming from, from Florida. And as they arrive, he starts to uh, transform into the lizard again and fully transforms into, into the lizard, uh, which uh, establishes the, the main theme of the story, which is uh, Spider-Man trying to find out where the lizard is uh, and trying to, to get him back and to, and to cure him. Along the way, we get into more socializing pages with the gang getting together for the first time. So MJ, Harry, Flash, Peter and Gwen all together, which will establish the dynamic of the of the more of the relationships uh, of the book for the next 100 issues almost. So that, that really gels the, 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 the complete um, evolution of the of the character. And we the book ends with uh, yet another depressing panel and with uh, Spidey getting his arm strained and, and so having to uh, and being defeated by the lizards. So that means that in the next issue, he has to fight the lizards with only one arm, which changes the, 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 the level of risk he's going to take to, to solve the, the problem. I love it. Uh, I think yeah. it's a great plot device and a great way to tell uh, to make the story a little just that much more interesting. I also really like Ramita's lizard. Uh, he becomes more and more dinosaur-like as the years go by, but mm. I just love this simplistic look where he still wears his lab coat and and he has just uh, some great scenes and great poses uh, during the the scenes where the lizard is like trying to break into the um, uh, whatever whatever it is where he's trying to rob something. Um, it it's just a uh, very dynamic. That the one splash page where he you know says the lizard lives again. I love it. Mm. Yeah, it's really great. Lizard is always. I think maybe I said this in one of the first episodes, but Lizard's always been one of my favorite uh, Spider-Man villains. And it, initially, it was because I, when I was a kid, I found out his name was also Curtis. And yeah. so that all, always uh, is, is something that I, you know, you attach to the characters that have the same name as you mm. when you're a kid. Yeah, for sure. Um, but then he's just an interesting character. He's way more two-dimensional than, you know, the rhino or the vulture or whatever. Uh, he's just so much more interesting. And I love how they've developed him and his family, even though his family is used as plot devices all the time. Uh, it's mm. great to see how it affects um, how it affects the way that Spider-Man works and how it affects the way that Kurt Connors uh, deals with problems. Like he just ran away from from them in this in the train station in this issue, and, and also the fact that they have a different relationship means that uh, Spider-Man has a bigger responsibility to the lizard than he has to Doctor Octopus. Right. Yeah. It's different, completely different relationship. So he can't cut loose uh, on the lizard because he knows is uh, is friends with the, the alter ego of the lizard. So that's a different approach, and uh, I think it's one of the things that, uh, that that's very well played in this issue and uh, and the next one. I think. 
Flash Thompson is going for a draft physical in this. He's going to become a war hero, he says. He's joining the army. Mm. And uh, probably, I guess, sent over to Korea or something? Or is it Vietnam? Uh, v- v- Vietnam. Oh, yeah, Vietnam. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes, it's it's Vietnam because it pays out uh, like <laughs> 80 issues further when uh, we have this, we have a two-parter with uh, uh, some Vietnamese character uh, that he met when he was in Vietnam. So, yeah, Vietnam. Oh, sure. right, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he is going to be written out of the story. And this... And what happens with Aunt May a little bit later uh, is kind of these are the last couple characters from the Ditko days that Stan is kind of getting rid of. Mm. He he's yeah, really sure. he's really getting rid of all of the old cast and creating his new new characters here. I I like this issue a lot. I think it was a it was really really well done. Uh, this whole two parter, in fact, going into the next issue, excellent stuff. Mm. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, and the, you see how much. Once again, the, 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 the look and feel of the book, how it's evolving issue by issue, it, it really feels like Romita is fighting with his, with his own style and keeps on trying to use those nine panel grids yep. on the social scenes. But when it comes to the action scenes, it's gone uh, and, it, and it looks like he can't do it anymore. It's very obvious because he's trying to use, you know, on page 148, he's trying to, to use one of those Ditko panel uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, on the, uh, when Spidey's hanging Swing by two from, webs. Yeah, that's right. So it could have been a sort of uh, Ditko panel, but when you see the top of the page, with the, 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 especially the second panel on the, on, on the top, uh, you know, with this shot coming from the back, yeah. that's not something Ditko would do. So... Uh, it's once again the, the nice look and feel and uh, a great evolution. And the drawings are just moodier as well. He uses a lot more shadows now at this point. Um, yeah. And it just, because he's inking his own stuff, I think he has a, a much nicer line than uh, than Demio did. He can under, he interprets his own drawings a little bit differently, I think. So yeah, really neat. Yeah, I think that those th- those issues that we have here with Epic 7 is the best Romita experience you can have uh, because the, it's the only moment when he's inking himself uh, because most of the time afterwards we will have uh, Mike Esposito or Jim Mooney inking Romita. Uh, when it's on FF, it's Sinot or uh, someone else. On Captain America, it's Joe Sinot as well or Frank Jacoya sometimes. So it's always a different experience, but when you, the, the, one of the rare times you have Romita inking himself, uh, it's in those issues and in uh, Epic Collection 7, probably less than, less than. Wow. Yeah, I was saying, you know that Romita is one of my favorite artists, so I'm, just, <laughs> oh, yes. I'm quite, quite into it. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Love the information. Uh, let's keep going over to issue number 45, Spidey Smashes Out. Uh, this is, it, we, we start off right off the bat, Peter's frantically kind of looking for the lizard, trying to figure out where he is, eventually tracks him down in a train yard where there's a shipment of reptiles. Um, meanwhile, the uh, the whole gang is uh, trying to figure themselves out. Flash is, uh, the way they are writing now, Flash is definitely, he gets a line here and there, but he's really kind of pushed to the sidelines. The focus is mm. way more on Harry now. Yeah, uh, You can see that their friendship is building. And with the with Gwen and Mary Jane both in the picture, it's like, who's going to ask out who kind of like, there's definitely this romantic tension between 
all four of these characters, but no one's really making a move anyway. Um, it's completely an Archie, Betty, and Veronica and Jughead yeah. approach. It's so obvious, especially between Gwen and uh, and then Jay. It really feels that way. And Romita has mentioned several times, and Stanley as well has mentioned that it was clearly his, his inspiration. There's a great scene where Spider-Man and the lizard fight in a refrigerated train car, and it all turns blue like the the colors mm. are all just using different shades of blue like i think there's one panel that has five different shades of blue in it and it's uh it's very effective it, you really get the sense mm. of cold and i love how peter thinks about um like he knows especially with his arm the way it is that he can't take the uh, the lizard as he is so how does he actually uh defeat the lizard in a smart way and he figures out that yeah lowering the the temperature of the of the lizard will help subdue yeah, him. And, who, and who said that comics were not educational <laughs> oh yes i've learned so much from comics over the years mm-hmm. yeah me too and for instance i didn't know that about reptiles for instance so yeah I, I, that's one of the things i learned from reading comic books unless it's not true maybe stan just made it up i guess we should double check oh. all of his facts <laughs> i don't know <laughs> well whenever you go into a zoo or something and you have the, the reptile area it's always always very warm that's so, true yeah so makes sense i think my favorite page in this issue is page 11 it's page 163 in this yeah. issue here yeah. it has just two panels on it And the flow of the drawing, just the layout is just fantastic here because you get, if you look at this top panel, you see the train car with all the snakes coming out of it. Your eye goes to, of course, the top, um, the top word balloon that the lizard is saying Mm -hmm. after him, my beauties. And then your eye is drawn across the panel, across lizard's arms over to his other speech bubble um or the the you know the pair of speech bubbles where Spider-Man and Lizard are talking and that then your eye is brought down the tail of the the Spider-Man balloon over to Spider-Man and then leads directly into the thought balloon that Spider-Man is thinking he's gone too far uh, so it's just the flow that you get this really nice curve that leads directly to the the other thought balloons in the second panel that Spider-Man is saying well I've no time to worry about that now and then your eye will go over to Lizard's uh, Lizard's yeah. speech bubble that says he is our enemy and brings you down through the lizard. And then the curvature of all of these reptiles, the two crocodiles, curves around and brings you back up to Spider-Man so you can see Spider-Man in the foreground. I think it's just a brilliant layout. And it, it guides your eye, I think, exactly where you need to go in order to experience this panel. I, I, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, because it's, it's, those are wider panels. Yep. So it's, it's always easy to, when you have a, a tight panel, to show the, 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 the dynamic that panel should have. But when you get to bigger panels, you have to make it readable. And it's very efficient because you have this, uh, this uh, oh, I don't know the word for that in English, actually. <laughs> Uh, you know, when you cross a rectangle, when you cross it, you know, from top right to bottom left. Yeah. Uh, to, to, you know, the, the, the diagonal. The, the, yes, that's it. 
uh, it always has to be here in the layout. Most of the time, you, you don't see it, but it's it's always there. But the wider the panel gets, it's more complicated. And the way that the lizard is drawn, it show you it shows you diagonal, uh, yeah. like you said. Exactly. And even the way that the lizard's drawn in the second panel with his arm outstretched shows you yeah. like that the arm is drawing your eye to the lizard's body, which then takes you down the, the crocodiles, the way the crocodiles are curved. I think that Romita is very good for that, but really, and even though I'm not that fond of his style, the master for that is Ross Andrew, mm. uh, who drew uh, quite a bunch of issues of Spider-Man. He's basically the 70s artist of Spider-Man, and uh, he was a master for that. I mean, his storytelling is incredible. You can take any page and it's so clear where you have to position your eyes uh, whenever you read. But uh, it's a very good example you're showing here. Yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things which I really appreciated and found, found really good in this issue takes, takes place on page uh, three of the issue, 155, page four, actually, that the lizard doesn't understand Kurt Connors' equations. Right. We've got a Hulk situation here. Yeah, exactly. They have completely two different personalities. So, and it's like he's not mentioning as Connors as himself. It's some someone else completely. So it's very uh, even further than the, the Hulk, which is somehow kind of uh, into a knowledge that is both Banner and and Hulk. Here, it's it looks like it's two different two different personalities entirely. And this is something that changes with the lizard yeah. from time to time. Sometimes he has his intelligence, sometimes he doesn't. But yeah, I think it works. And uh, and I also enjoyed the fact that, uh, uh, like for the for the rhino in the in two two issues before, Spider Man uses his brain to save the day and not yeah. uh, just fights through and wins by by fighting, but also outsmarts the villain. Uh, so issue forty six called the Sinister Shocker. So we have this new villain which is introduced, uh, so the, called the Shocker, who, who appears. It's really a villain of the month kind of a, kind of thing, uh, with the, the, the this guy being uh, robbing bank and having those powers thanks to a mechanical device that is using to give uh, electromagnetic shocks. Uh, or vibrating shocks. So that's the, the uh, we get a, a bit of origin and backstory to the character, but that's really not the main topic of the book. Uh, and the main topic of the book is really more the evolution of uh, the situation of Peter Parker with Aunt May coming back from Florida and moving with Mrs. Watson, so uh, Mary Jane's aunt, and uh, and Peter being asked to move in with uh, with Harry and choosing to do so. So by the end of the issue, the, the, the status quo has completely changed. So Peter is no longer living with, uh, with Aunt May and now living in a, in a nice flat, uh, paid by Norman Osborn in the center of New York. So it's a, it's it's different. It's really the end of the Ditko era, the the early days of Spider-Man, and we're getting into a, a different kind of book by then. Yeah, it and he'll still, of course, check in with Aunt May all the time, but she is not a mm. focal part of the story anymore. She is not going to be the thing that ties Peter to uh you know to to his old life or the the reason why he can't be spider-man uh we're not going to deal with her as much uh, uh, as much anymore 
Uh, I also like the, the fact that Harry provides the place for Peter is brilliant because Peter is always uh, hard up for cash, so he would never really be able to afford a place on his own. Uh, so they take care of that along with like the what is it the scholarship for university. So he do, he really doesn't have a whole lot of expenses anymore. Uh, mm. Which is gonna I don't know if that changes the dynamic with with Jonah and the pictures and all that, but not that much. Yeah. <laughs> not that much. Um, so the only thing we have to do is say goodbye to Flash Thompson, and uh, which will happen soon enough, and then we're yeah, all of the cast has really changed. And I know that Harry and Gwen were characters created by Steve, but they were um, they were not developed by the time Steve had. Um, had left the book and then also Stan has now sort of completely changed their personalities anyway so they're totally different characters yeah uh, the Shocker is nice. I like the Shocker actually. I think even though he's kind of a villain of the month like you said he has um, a, a cool gizmo that he uses to to display his powers and his costume design is nice. I like that too. A lot of the things that people like artists nowadays or since then have done is they just make his costume lines on fabric. Whereas mm. this one with Ramita's own uh, inking, you can see the textures that it's actually like the lines are actually sewn parts of the fabric uh, where, where he, like he, where he's wearing an insulated outfit so that he will be protected against his own vibrations. And it's a nice design for the costume. His inking gives it that kind of puffier texture, which a lot of people these days don't bother to add in, in their details. Yeah, especially the boots, for instance, which look like a bit like snow boots. Yeah. But it's very likely to be uh, uh, something for isolation. Insulation. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> And then at the very end of this issue here, uh, there's a, a great heartwarming uh, scene where Peter confronts Aunt May because he's like, I don't want to tell her that I want to move out. And she's like, I don't want to tell him that I want to move out. <laughs> mm. And then they come to the realization that there's what, what they both want. And they go off um, together. Peter gets to his new apartment and he's still not happy. He stands there in the yeah. middle and he's like, what does he say here? Perhaps in some mysterious, strange way, when I gained another identity, I lost the capacity for happiness. He's like, he has what he wants, but why does he just not feel satisfied with this? Yeah, it's a, it's something which, uh, once again, uh, is building towards issue 50. Yep. But uh, yeah, kind of gives uh, an overall impression that uh, Peter is always a depressed person. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's something that I want to mention uh, at the very end of the last issue. What I, I, I meant to say this, but I didn't. Uh, we have the same kind of a moment on the last page where Peter throws his costume in anger. It's like, mm. every problem I have is caused by Spider-Man. And then it switches to a happy family unit with the Connors mm. all together saying, if Spider we're only like this because of Spider-Man. It's, it's an incredible contrast between how he views his job as Spider-Man and how they view his job as Spider-Man. Mm. One bit of, uh, of French trivia for you. Okay. Page 190, uh, the top panel. Uh, you see the pose, the Spider-Man pose. That, uh, that that you see on the top panel. Yes, it was cut out of the, the well reused from that issue in the French magazine we had in the seventies and the eighties, uh, where Spider-Man was appearing. You know, on we had the cover obviously, yeah. and page two was a sort of credit page that was giving 
uh, that on page one you had Daredevil because in that magazine we had Daredevil, Iron Man, and two issues of Spider-Man most of the time. Okay. Um, because we were running so behind the U.S. by, by then that uh, in 1997 in France we had stories before Gwen's death, oh, man. which took place. In, so we had <laughs> we were like four or five years behind. Uh, anyway, and we had this credit page that was presenting all the, the characters and the stories. And we had one drawing of, uh, of Daredevil, one drawing of Iron Man, which was done by uh, Tosca, if I remember well. And we had this bit of Spider-Man, which was cut out and that I saw for years and years and years in that magazine, when, uh, because all, every month it was the same uh, credit page. And uh, I didn't know where, where it was coming from. Uh, and I hadn't read that issue in quite a long while. And when I read it uh, this time to prepare the podcast, I was like, wow, this is the drawing that I've seen for years. And uh, it was and every French reader, uh, which is by my age, so between 35 and 50, has obviously seen that in, yeah. the, in the, that magazine back then. <laughs> awesome. Oh, man, ingrained in your memory. Well, yeah, well, it's full of useless stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, well, I think this brings us to our halfway point in this volume. We're going to take a break and resume our talk next week uh, with the rest of the issues in this epic collection. Uh, but just just right off the bat, the it's incredible to see the transition that Romita does from the beginning of this book, which was good, to where he comes even halfway through this book. It's only like six or seven issues later uh, and does an incredible job. Um the and Stan's dialogue is easier to read. He's streamlined his his text a whole lot more, and like you said, the panel layouts have changed to make it easier to read as well. Uh, this book is going in a very good direction. Yeah, it really establishes the the the, the book for the next eighty or ninety issue, I think. Up to to the death of Gwen Stacy, really. Yeah. You, you it established the dynamic between the characters, uh, the look and feel of the book, this kind of romance mixed with action book that Spider-Man, uh, Amazing Spider-Man becomes, and still somehow is today with variations, but uh, uh, clearly it established the, the the classic Spider-Man that everybody has come to 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 love. Definitely. In my yep. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoyed our talk today. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you just search for Epic Marvel Podcast. And search for Epic Collections on Facebook to join our Facebook group where we can talk about this volume and more. And uh, and otherwise, we will see you next week. Thanks again for joining us for this episode, Frank, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care.